Well, let's take our Bibles together and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. While you're looking that up, let me remind you of the spring conference that's coming up. We sprung forward this morning. Uh, the early service bore silent witness <laughs> to those who hadn't adjusted their clock or whose own time clock wasn't adjusted. But we were we're kind of not there spring-wise, but we're calling it a spring conference anyway. It's in, still in March, March 24th. Uh, Amy Bird is speaking. It's going to be a stimulating, fun time, I think. And uh, we're all welcome to come. And you can register online or for your convenience. And just because it's you, you can also register after the service in reception hall, right a few steps through these, this door. So no excuse for anyone saying they don't know how to work the online thing, like me. Okay? You can sign up there. Have I made that clear? Because I will be critiqued afterwards on my announcement. Well, we're going to read from Hebrews chapter… Let's start at chapter 1039, and we'll read to verse 3 of chapter 11, where the apostle or the author writes, "'But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, or as I would rather translate it, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Heavenly Father, You've given us the Word of Christ as our rule. Do give us Your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, that Your greater glory might be our supreme concern. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. So the author is introducing us, you'll notice, to the idea of faith. That comes up again and again in this passage. It's famous. It's called the By Faith chapter. In fact, the printers of our Bibles have helped us by putting, by adding their little heading for the entire chapter, just in case you didn't pick it up for yourself. And we think of faith, typically as Christian people, we think of it at two levels. We think of the, the initial act of faith, that is, when we first of all hear the good news of the gospel and we're told to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. That initial act of faith is something that is achieved by the work of God in us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And when we are first becoming Christians, that action of trusting in Christ is something which stands alone. It, it, God is not looking for faith plus works in order to give us the gift of eternal life. What he says right at the very beginning is, I want you to put all of your weight, all of the weight of your faith and trust in what the Lord Jesus has accomplished for you. Rest in Him and in Him alone for your salvation. That's my word to you this morning if you're not a Christian. That becoming a Christian is entirely a work of Christ which we receive with empty hands by faith. But as we come to this part of Hebrews, 
The author is thinking not so much of that initial action of coming to Christ. He's thinking of the journey that that coming to Christ begins. He's thinking of the rest of your life, your day-to-day Christian life, and the day-to-day faith that that life requires. It's the kind of thing the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans when he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. He's thinking not of the start of the Christian life, but the walk, the journey, the movement of the Christian life. And he says the hallmark of that life is faith. And what the author is going to tell us here is that that faith, the faith that we exercise every day, does not rest on reason or notion, or speculation, or superstition. Our faith rests upon the Word of God. And the Lord Jesus, you remember, told us about that Word. He said this, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all has been accomplished. We rest our case. We rest our souls. We rest our eternal well-being on that Word of God. And that's how this passage that we've read today, and the two verses that I want to look at with you today, that's how these verses hang together. Look at verse 2, where he talks about faith and God's witness. And I want you to notice the difference between what happens when a person trusts in Christ. When a person trusts in Christ, It's Christ and what He's done for you that is the clinching deal. All we do is receive it, and God looks at Christ and gives us eternal life and gives us salvation. But do you notice when we start to talk about what we might call day-to-day faith, lived out among the various and contrary notions and actions of a fallen, fragile, fallible world, When we think about that living faith, God looks at it. When you first believe God looks at Christ and gives you salvation, as you go on in the Christian life, God looks at your faith, and if you read these words, you'll find that God takes note of it, and He bears witness to it, and He commends it. Let's read again verse 2. For by it, that is by faith, the people of old, that is the ancients, the elders, the fathers, the people we heard about back in chapter 1, verse 1, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. These people of old, the Old Testament saints, and now from our perspective, New Testament saints, by it, the people of old received their commendation. We're going to have a lot of them mentioned in this chapter. We're going to begin by people that lived before the flood, Abel and Enoch and Noah. And we're going to read about people like Abraham and David. God commended their faith. And the implication is that what God did for them, He'll do for us. He's taking note of our faith. The way we live our lives from day to day, characterized by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God uh, has borne witness to people throughout this book. For example, God through the Holy Spirit bore witness through the many signs and wonders worked by the apostles. 
Those signs and wonders added credibility to their message about the eternal priesthood of the Son, about the wiping away of sin by the work of Christ's sacrifice. And now he's bearing witness to the faith of men and women who have lived their lives clinging on by faith to God in the midst of a world that was opposed to them. I have a friend who wrote a book once on Hebrews 11, and one of the things that he talked about in that book is he said that in every generation there is a stigma attached to believing God. For the early Christians, for example, the stigma was declaring that the Messiah, Jesus, had been crucified. By being hung on a tree, he came under the curse of God. Jews found that a problem. By talking about a crucified God, they were a laughingstock to the Gentile population. Christ crucified was a stigma. In the 19th century, believing that the Bible was without error and was the inspired Word of God had a stigma for people in the polite society of the 19th century. And in our own day, I suppose there are various ways in which believing in God carries with it a stigma, depending on what group of society you mix with. Believing what God has said, going by what God has said, marks you out as being different. And what the writer is telling us here is that whatever other people think of us, God is paying attention. God is taking note. God is commending and on the final day, God will do for each of us here what He does for this selection of Old Testament saints. He will show to a watching world how believing God has brought His commendation and His reward. Now, it's in light of this believing God business that the author does something quite unusual here. We would expect that having talked about the the people of old, the ancients, that he would have immediately begun by the most ancient people of all, those who lived before the flood, Abel, for example, who he uses there in verse 4. But he doesn't. Instead, he pauses, having made this point, as if he's saying to everybody who's reading him, okay, you want to go on and hear the stories of people who lived in the past and who trusted God and how God used that. Think about this. This applies to everybody, everywhere, in every age, at all times. This is what he says. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, our church has a confession of faith, and here's what it says. It says this, that pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, and all very good. And what the confession is doing is fleshing out what it says in this verse. 
this, if you like, is the first movement of faith, of movement towards God. When, when you bow to God, you first bow to Him as the Creator. The Bible has been given to us in a certain shape that begins at the beginning of the story. And right at the very beginning of the Bible, on the first page of the Bible, we are urged to bow before God as the Creator. And we are immediately introduced in those very first verses of the Bible to the absolute distinction between the uncreated and the created, the creator and the creature. This absolute distinction marks the rest of the book. If we get that wrong right at the very beginning, then the way we think about this word God will go all over the place as we go on in our understanding. It's a basic Christian principle because it's a basic biblical principle that God created the universe ex nihilo, out of nothing. Now, this knowledge does not just come about when you sit down and kind of think about it one day. This knowledge comes to us by divine revelation. That is, it comes from that spontaneous, gracious, generous self-communication of God to His creatures over time through the holy prophets of the Old Testament and the holy apostles of the New Testament. That revelation begins with God before moving on to discuss everything that is not God. If you talk about us, you're talking about something that isn't God. If you talk about outer space, you're talking about something that isn't God. If you talk about planets or plants, you're talking about things that are not God. It begins with God and then goes on to speak about that which is not God. Creation is a kind of summary word to describe the harmony, beauty, and order of God's acts, the things that God has done outside of Himself, external to Himself, the works of nature, for example, directed towards the good of all His cre creatures, the works of grace directed towards all His elect bringing them to a happy goal, a happy end of fellowship, fellowship with Him. The physical sight of Jesus in His human nature and the immediate spiritual vision of the divine persons and the divine essence in the beatific vision that is being prepared for us. And so, right at the very beginning, do you see, before he deals with the nuts and bolts of living a life of faith, he starts us off here with the ineffability of God. You say, Liam, did you swallow a dictionary? What does ineffable mean? Well, you've got a phone, look it up. Google it, and you'll soon find out. It's saying, really, that God is beyond our ken, beyond our understanding, incomprehensible to us, beyond the limits of our, under, our, our mind to imagine or conceive of. In other words, what the author is doing here is he's pushing us, pushing us to the limits of finite and fallen creaturely intelligence. I find uh, Professor John Webster very helpful in a couple of things that he's written on creation and creation out of nothing. 
And in one of them, he quotes from Basil of Caesarea, one of the church fathers. And uh, I looked up, I followed the trail of his quotation to Basil and was reading him. And uh, Basil, when he's t- reflecting, talking about reading the Bible, and he says, you begin at the b- beginning of the Bible and you read those words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Basil puts it like this, when I read that, I stop, I stop, struck with admiration at this thought, in the beginning, God. Why is it such an admirable thought? Webster goes on to to answer, partly it's because the act of creation is not an object of experience and understanding. The act of creation is the precondition to all experience and all understanding. Just to create is to cross an absolute gulf, to bring about being that was not. That's what we mean when we talk about creation. And Basil's example is a a pause, puts a pause on our rush to start speculating, to start asking questions like the question, how? Like Basil, we should stop. We should consider this fact, the fact that what is might not have been and yet is. Think about that. We pause and ponder the fact that what is, this pulpit, you people, this planet, this universe, what is, might not have been and yet is. Isn't that a remarkable thing to consider? And then consider that before it was, there was the infinite bliss and happiness and joy and love enjoyed by God in Himself from all eternity. Pause and ponder. Think. Think of the God who lies on the other side of that might not have been. The God of whom Paul speaks when he says, uh, talks about his divine power and invisible nature. What is seen, he says, was made out of things that do not appear. Now, there is something in us, I think, not only because we're finite minds, but because our minds are fallen minds, that makes us allergic to the whole idea of creation out of nothing. We consider that what we see simply is. I mean, it it may have taken a long time to get to where it is, but it simply is. And we, we talk in terms of billions and billions of years and so forth, that where it was. So we think in those terms. What we see when we look at things around us is we, th- we see things that are, are changeable, 
mutable, matter, and me. Back in January, I went over to speak at a conference, and I took a, a day to go down to Hamilton, where I grew up, and to meet up with some old friends. We used to have a gospel singing group that went round and played in various places. It was called the Good News Group. They were creative in their titles in those days. They took me a lot around with them. They sang, I spoke. So we all met up. I sat in that room with all these old men and thought, what? <laughs> we were teenagers just yesterday going around singing at these places. And there's these old guys with their wives. And I thought, I don't really want to see myself the way they see me. I hadn't seen them for about 30 years. We live in a world where things are mutable, changeable. Everything is changing. You are changing. It's a reality that we face. So we, can't, we find it hard then to go from this to the immutable, unchangeable God. We can't imagine it. It's beyond our ability to conceive. Our minds and our thinking are finite and to complicate matters further, our minds and our thinking are fallen. So we need this divine revelation. We need illumination to bridge the gap between the visible and the invisible, the seen and the unseen, the created and the creator. And this knowledge that all things were created is an element of the faith that has been delivered to us by the prophets and the apostles. St. Augustine put it like this that God made the world, we can believe from no one more safely than from God Himself. Was the prophet present when God made the heavens and the earth? No. But the wisdom of God, by whom all things were made, was there. And wisdom insinuates itself into holy souls and minds and makes them into friends of God and prophets and noiselessly informs them all of his works. I like that phrase. This is how the, he's describing the inspiration. He's describing how the prophets received the message from God. Noiselessly informs them of all his works. The prophets were the divinely authorized and inspired instruments through whom God communicated his truth to his church in every generation. Now, we don't get to this knowledge of God as changeless, the invisible God. We don't get there on our own, which is why God speaks to us. Right at the very beginning of this book, we studied these words long ago at many times in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And the God who spoke surprises us. He transcends everything. He's greater than. We're not, to, we're not to imagine for a moment that God can do everything we can do, but only can do it better because He's bigger. That's a wrong view of God. He isn't just bigger than us, greater than us. He is absolutely nothing like us. Nothing like us. His being is an entirely different kind of being to us. And when we come with our little questions, remember that we were absent when He made everything. When we come with our little questions, 
He asked us the same question that he asked of Job. Were you, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he probably says of us from time to time what he said about people then. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without wisdom? When it comes to this subject, the author is telling us the only safe hands to give us a description of what happened in the beginning is the beginner, God Himself. Now, some of this knowledge, of course, is built into what God has made. As Paul says, there's a, there is a natural knowledge available to everyone. This is how Paul puts it. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. But here's the problem. The fall has affected our perception. The psalmist says in Psalm 106, they soon forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel. They went off in their own directions, coming up with their own ideas of what happened. Paul adds that humans suppress the truth. They put a lid on the truth. They keep it down. And they have become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts. Are darkened. The ineffability of God, the necessity, therefore, of faith. The author's introduced us to faith as the principal part of the Christian life and has told us that the ancients were noted by their faith. But here he speaks to us, we, we, he says, we understand. Faith involves a certain kind of knowing, of knowledge, it's the kind of knowledge where you grasp something or have an insight into something. It's an aha moment, if you will, where lights come on in your head. And this kind of understanding about which he speaks is not something you can have in relation to something that does not exist, like the tooth fairy. I'll get into trouble for mentioning her name. This kind of understanding only works where something does exist. And so what faith does is it links our understanding and connects us with something that is real, though invisible to us, and switches on a light in our head. And what is that light? We understand that the universe was brought into existence by the Word of God. He called things into being. The, the efficient cause of the creation of the world, of the universe, and of His framing of the world is the almighty power of God expressed by His Word. It is by the Word of God that faith gains an understanding that everything came into existence by the Word of God. Now, this means that these things that are seen are not self-contained, self-derived, self-sufficient. There is a speaker. There is a Word behind these things. 
The speaker remains invisible and ineffable to our senses. We, we can't see him. But he brings forth everything that our senses encounter. These things are not seen, include the inner life of God himself, or the theologians call God ad intra, that is, in himself. And before we think of what God has done and God has made, and think of the things that we can see with our senses that he has made, we need to start by thinking of who he is in himself, even though creation and creatures might not have been. We have to get the might not have been before we understand the wonder of what is. God is, we might not have been. Behind what is seen, that is, matter, time, light, sky, stars, earth, planets, us, countless other things, is what is unseen. We didn't see creation happen. There were no eyewitness reports. The Apostle Paul says that before and behind the universe, including the world of angels, all of created reality is I am. God who is. That's how, he, that's how he introduces himself. God who is. His invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature. The king of the ages, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, immortal, invisible, the only God. The God who calls the things into existence, the things that do not exist, Paul says in Romans chapter 4. By divine revelation, we're unable to see by faith what cannot be seen by sight. Everything we see is made. And everything that had a prior cause, that is, was made, is in movement. It is changing. There's a sense in which we see the universe continues to expand even as we're speaking this morning, and we, we continue to progress unfortunately progress downwards, you know, to, to dissolution. That's the goal. But the question is laid before us, where is this motion going? Where is this movement going? Why is this changing taking place? Is there some goal? Is there some end? Is there some purpose to all of this? I want to illustrate just exactly how much movement there is. And I want to do so from a secular source uh, and from a non-Christian perspective and ref reflect for a moment on the Big Bang Theory. People imagine that the Big Bang took place in a particular point of space. So people imagine space, empty space, and the Big Bang taking place in some point in space. But all space as we know it today in the enormity of it, all space at the point of the Big Bang was originally a singularity. I'll explain it in a moment. According to the cosm cosmic inflation theory of physicist Alan Goth, a fraction of a moment after the dawn of creation, the universe underwent a sudden dramatic expansion. The whole episode 
may have lasted no more than 10 to the power of 30 seconds. That is one million, 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 millionths of a second. But it changed the universe from something you could hold in your hand to something at least 10 septillion times bigger. 10 septillion is 10 with 24 zeros after it. Bigger. James Lidsey notes that after the Big Bang, the matter currently contained in the entire universe as we know it, the minute after the Big Bang, all of that was contained, that's a thousand, what is it, 100 billion galaxies, was contained, squashed into a region of space considerably smaller than an atom. So from a space smaller than an atom, Big Bang Theory says, within one million, 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 millionths of a second came the universe, the size that we know it to be today. And if it took a million, 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 millionth of a second to do that, what could you do if you had six days to work at it? <laughs> anyway, that, that's, a, that's not my point. But this is a secular kind of origins. And do you see, built into the whole secular kind of origins is the same principle that we observe today of motion and change. And what faith discovers in one is one in whom there is no motion and change, one who is his own end and goal, one who is immovable because he is eternally at rest. His goal is himself. He is not moving. He is not part of this created reality. He is at rest. He is the great I am. He is God who is. In Jesus' words, he has life in himself. He is the one to, who has made the universe to move towards the goal. You want to know what the goal is? Ephesians chapter 1, the mystery of his will, his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There's the goal. And it's therefore appropriate that when God takes on our humanity and he comes down to our level, he should say to us, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll let you share the eternal rest of God if you come to me. And that's still his promise and still his invitation. So, to summarize, you ready for this? These are three points, or four, three. Before creation, God is entirely himself, wholly sufficient, wholly happy. The acts of creation did not complement him, or complete him, or constitute him. He was himself. He needed nothing, no one. 
at creation, God is entirely free. Before creation, He's entirely Himself. At creation, God is entirely free. Matthew Levering, in his book on creation, says, creation is an act of God's free love and boundless goodness. Because the God who created, you see, is Deus Unus, Deus Trinus, one in three. Within Himself, He has eternally enjoyed the perfection of love and life. That intra-Trinitarian love is love at the pinnacle of perfection. In other words, God did not need us. He did not need anything outside of Himself. He didn't need anything to make up for any deficiency in Himself, or to keep Him company because He was lonely, or to love Him back. He didn't need that. We need to understand that. That all that isn't God exists because God is simply good and generous. He made it for us, not for Himself. St. Athanasius puts it like this, God is good, or rather, the source of goodness, and the good has no envy for anything. Thus, because He envies nothing its existence, He made everything from nothing through His own Word, our Lord Jesus Christ. The uncreated creates. And that creation, there's no agitation in God, there's no deficit in God. He isn't tired, doesn't need a break, no exhaustion, no effort, no movement. By the Word of God, He creates. And then the last thing is, in creation, God is entirely alone. In Isaiah 44, it says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by Myself. No other agents, no other acts, no other objects. The act of creation was the beginning, the beginning of all being outside of God. Creation is the absolute beginning. So there can be no material cause. The agent is the Creator Himself. By His Word, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be, and it was so. By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Let all the earth fear the Lord, for He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood forth. The Word was with God in the beginning. He was God. And all things were made through Him and for Him. And without Him was nothing made that was made. It's God who said, let light shine in the out of darkness, who shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Christ is the agent of creation and recreation. And in creation, non-being is not converted into being. God makes everything out of nothing by the word of His power. And He does it so that creatures might one day, having been adopted into His family, having been given His Holy Spirit, be transformed into the physical likeness of Jesus, and as sons of God and being glorified as Jesus is in His humanity, sharing that 
experience that rest and bliss and love that God himself has enjoyed forever. We cannot even begin to comprehend what that is like. Joy beyond all telling. Love beyond all knowing. God made everything with the purpose of bringing his people into the full enjoyment. Jesus prays this, Father, that they may know the love you've had for me from before the foundation of the world. Brother and sister, beloved, this is our God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would increase our faith, that you would stretch our imaginations, that you would uh, reign us, but also guide us and release us by your word of truth, we pray. And we ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.